That is so awesome. I love stuff like that, and we want to do a lot more of that. Hey, we're going to roll right into the message this morning, and we've been doing a study on 1 Timothy. I hope you're getting a lot out of it. I'm getting a lot out of it. Really enjoy what we're talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. We started this um, at the beginning of January, and it's going to continue through the rest of the year. So buckle up. There's a lot of 1 Timothy coming. We're going to have a couple of offshoots along the way, but it'll all kind of uh, tie back into 1 Timothy. If, you, uh, if English is not your, your first language and be helpful for you to follow along in another language, you can do that at efree.org slash translate. There's a live transcription uh, that will come to your device if you go there and pick your language. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we really recommend... Bible app. It's what I use personally a lot, and it has reading plans on it. It's just a really convenient way to take God's Word with you wherever you go. And if you go there to events in First Free Church, you'll find our text for today and our announcements as well for today, or you can go to efree.org slash Bible. Well, we are at the end of chapter one of First Timothy. Uh, and it's, it's been great. I hope you've been here every single week. If not, you can go back and watch the messages online to catch up. It'll be important. Because the stuff that we are talking about this month is going to be important to know like two months from now and three months from now. All of this stuff is going to build on each other. In fact, we'll probably be referencing back to some of these early messages because they really do set the stage for what happens in the rest of the letter to First Timothy. Um, and I would encourage you to read this on your own too. Read First Timothy if you haven't already. Maybe multiple times this year. Study it on your own. And you will get so much more out of the messages if you do that. All right, let's dive into this passage for this morning. Our text for this morning is just three verses, and then we're going to pray and ask God to give us his guidance as we study it together. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. Let's pray together that God would bless our study of his word. Heavenly Father, this is not an easy passage to preach on. It's a difficult one. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you'd have us to learn from it. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and influence um, and help us to see areas that we need to grow in, areas that we need to be aware of, maybe vigilant of for the future, Lord. Just help us to be prepared um, for the, the path in front of us and any difficult situations we might encounter. As Paul is counseling Timothy and giving him guidance, help us to learn from that as well, from your Holy Spirit, as you teach us through your word, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not exactly a fun passage to speak on, to be honest. There's a lot of challenging stuff in here, and I'm going to try to unpack it as best as I can. Hopefully, we'll get some good things out of it. I also want to make it um, a little fun, and this might be more fun for some of you than others. So I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about something in my opening illustration here that some of you are going to be a little repulsed by, some of you are going to think is amazing, okay? So there's your warning. How many of you like bugs? You like, think bugs are cool. Anybody think bugs are cool? Okay, all right, all right. How many of you think bugs are terrible? Like, get, them, get rid of them all. Like, get rid of the bugs. Yeah, you guys win, okay? Hands down, you guys win. Um, when I was a kid, I loved bugs. I thought they were awesome. They were cool and they were creepy, and I liked to bring them in the house, you know, which is awesome. 
and uh, had bug houses that I could put them in and catch them in and occasionally they would actually stay in there. And I had an ant farm, which did not keep the ants in forever. And one time I got a caterpillar and I put it in a bug house and I watched it build its cocoon so that it could come out as a butterfly. And I was never very good at keeping the, the caterpillars alive. I'm not sure why. I think you're supposed to feed them. But I liked bugs. I was fascinated by bugs. And when I was, when I was five years old, if I had learned about this bug that I just learned about recently, it would have absolutely blown my mind. How many of you have heard of a type of bug called an assassin bug? Are you familiar with the assassin bug? Aren't they cool? They're so awesome. They're like the ninjas of the insect world. They're amazing. They have all these different ways of sneaking up on their prey or tricking their prey. And I want to show you what these things can do because it's really phenomenal. But I'm just going to warn you because a lot of you raised your hands. If, if you don't like bugs, you may not want to watch this, okay? This is a video. It's fair warning. It's God's creation, all right? <laughs> fair warning. This is what an assassin bug looks like. Isn't that cool? It's got a dagger that comes out of its mouth. It's sneaking up on a grasshopper right now. They trick him in lots of different ways. This one is climbing up a plant, but as it's doing it, and watch this, it's gonna, it's gonna peek its head around. Look at that, isn't that? It's the ninjas of the insect world. It's waving its legs around so that it doesn't make distinct footsteps as it approaches on the plant. And so to the grasshopper, it just thinks that there's a gentle breeze blowing this plant. It can't detect the vibration of the footprints and it makes its way right up next to it and then boom, it's all over. Isn't that cool? Isn't that so cool? All right, here's another one. This one likes spiders and so it has figured out that it can make its way to the spider by cutting the web and separating it and it slices a line right through the web, right up to the spider. The spider never sees it coming. It's like a thief making its way through a laser guided system. This is another one. It's got a leg. It's got a little uh, feather on it. It's a feather legged assassin bug and it looks like it's a little wing of an animal or a little, little insect. And so an ant tries to take it in for its meal and then finds out it's the meal as the assassin bug whips around. Isn't that so cool? There's another one that lives in Africa, and this is my favorite one because it wins the gold medal for an endless supply of easy food. And what it does is it will walk right into an ant colony. That's its favorite food. And it will set up shop right there as the ants march back and forth doing their jobs. And whenever it feels like it, it will reach out and grab an ant and have it for a snack. And the ants don't detect it. They don't attack it like they would other insect invaders. They're oblivious to this assassin bug that comes in there and just sits right in its colony. How on earth does it manage this, you might be wondering. I'm glad you asked. So this assassin bug, before it goes into the colony, will make its way around the perimeter collecting other ants that are unlucky enough to be out on their missions. And it kills them, and it sticks them to its back and makes itself an ant camo suit. It literally makes itself a ghillie suit out of ants and then marches right into the colony past all the other ants and they don't see it. They're not aware of it. The scent is completely masked by this suit that it has created for itself and it sets up shop right there as the ants go back and forth, just a movable buffet and it just reaches out and picks one whenever it feels like it. You want to see it? It's really cool. 
This is an assassin bug in its ant suit. There's also a beetle on there, I think, so equal opportunity. Makes its way right into the colony, sits down, ants will go all around it, up and over it, no big deal. This one's like, hey, is that George? I think that's George. I haven't seen him in a while. And then at some point, the assassin bug gets hungry and just is like, that one looks good. Boom. And end the video. All right. So why the entomology lesson? <clears throat> why are we talking about assassin bugs in church this morning? The truth is some people can be a lot like assassin bugs. They manage to act like the right type of person and say the right things to infiltrate a group of people, but once they get there, they just cause destruction and chaos. And this is true for any group of people, but it's especially true, of course, in churches. Uh, This is not just a place where we come to worship God once a week. This is a family. This is a community. We do all sorts of things together. Not all of us together, but we have different pockets and groups and service ministries, and and we we stress groups all the time because we want you in a relationship with other people, not just attending church, but being a part of the church. And that happens when you really get to know each other. And so this is a community. This is a family. Um, But... People can act like they're a part of that community and a part of their family and move into the church and get plugged in there and start to do things and look like they're doing all the right stuff and then cause all kinds of problems and and cause division and spread even false teaching. And so that's how people can kind of be like the assassin bug. Jesus warns about this. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says that there are gonna be people, he's talking to his disciples who will be the future leaders of the church. And he says, look guys, there are gonna be people that are gonna come in and they're wolves, but they're gonna be in sheep's clothing. You ever heard that before? That comes from Jesus. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They're gonna be wolves that come in looking like sheep, but they're actually there to cause destruction. So Jesus warns about this. And both Jesus and Paul talk about these people that will come in and look like something they're not and ultimately they will cause destruction, in this case, in the church. And so Jesus wanted us to be able to identify them, be warned about this. Paul wanted us to be able to identify them and know what to do about them because if we don't, we will end up with division and destruction in our churches. Now, I witnessed this personally many years ago. A church I was a part of went through a nasty, nasty church split right down the middle and it was awful but as as you trace it back and you try to deconstruct it and go okay what happened here you realize there were some people that came into the church who really had not been there very long but they started to spread some teaching that was contrary in many cases to God's word And, and they started to spread behaviors and attitudes and gossip and quarreling and division and eventually they had amassed themselves a bit of a following from people that you never would have thought would have latched onto this but once they did, they kind of became like a tribe and they ended up causing a church split over this that did not need to happen. So this is serious stuff. This is not something I think that we're struggling with in our church right now but it's something we need to be aware of. It's something that Jesus wanted to warn us about and Paul wanted us to know about so we would know how to handle it. Now, before we dive into something like this, it's important to recognize that this is not a binary issue, right? It's not like there's just good people and there's bad people. We're complex people, right? We're all complicated. All of us are a mixture of good and bad, let's be honest, okay? And so there's kind of a spectrum here. And I don't want to just say that anybody that you find who's saying something you don't like um, needs to be viewed as an assassin bug. And it's like, ah, that's it. I found him. 
I found them, they pray a lot, they say the right things, but they do not like the same bands that I do, so they're out. We gotta be careful about that, so I want to introduce you to four categories of people that cause destruction in churches, okay? In the first category, these are, these are people who are not followers of Jesus, and they intentionally work to damage churches. Now, these are not the ones you'll usually find in the church. These are usually the ones that are around the perimeter of the church, or if they're in the church, it's just to look for opportunities to start a lawsuit. And that does happen. There are people that will go around intentionally trying to find ways to sue churches to try to damage them. They're not subtle about it. This is not a secretive kind of person. Category two is people who are not followers of Jesus either, but they think they are in some way. Or they believe Jesus existed. They're following some of his teachings. He's a good teacher. They believe a lot of things about him. Um, but they still work to do damage in churches. And a lot of this is because they have, they have sinful motives. Um, they're not followers of Jesus. And so they are driven oftentimes by power, uh, by seeking influence, by their ego, sometimes by jealousy, probably a combination of these different things. So they're not believers in Jesus, but they will infiltrate churches. And I have seen this personally. Uh, and they will cause all kinds of destruction. They may not even fully realize what they're doing, but there are sinful motives behind it. Category three. These are people who are followers of Jesus, so they, they are genuinely trusted in Jesus for their salvation, but they have mixed motives for damaging churches. Um, generally, this means they've got some sinful motives, but they've convinced themselves that they're doing the right thing. So they may have been confronted at some point, they may realize that this is the wrong thing, but they're just gonna stick with it, because man, this is the way I wanna do things, and, 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 or this is the teaching that I wanna have, or, or whatever. And so a lot of times their motives are going to be control or bitterness or power or influence or jealousy or a combination of those things. They're not necessarily outright trying to destroy the church, um, but they are causing a lot of damage. And they may even recognize it because at this point, it's just about their ego. It's just about their pride. And, and they can't admit that they were wrong or whatever. Category four is people who are followers of Jesus again, but they inadvertently damage churches. They don't know any better. It's just ignorance, it's a lack of experience, it's, it's opinions, it's convictions, it's things that they don't realize and they just need to be helped to understand a better way to go about doing things. These are the four types of people that can damage churches from all the way from really outside the church and very intentional damaging to inside the church and very unintentional damaging and then a couple of stages in between. It's important to understand this so that we don't accidentally put people in the wrong categories and so that we know what to look for. And we know what level of seriousness to treat someone that is maybe causing some problems within the church, if that ever happens. This is something that Paul and Jesus thought we needed to understand. Paul talks about these types of people in his letters to the churches and talks about how to handle them. Now, the second and third category of Christian are the ones that I would call assassin Christians. These are the assassin Christians, and the reason I call them that is, is because they do it in a kind of a subtle way, whether they realize it or not, they're sort of blending in, acting like they're going along with everybody else, but they're actually causing a lot of damage and destruction in the process. In some cases, they get it, and it's kind of intentional at this point, and in other cases, they may not fully understand it, but they're sort of under the surface causing problems and yet trying to look like everything is okay. And the reason I put Christian in quotation marks is because in one case, they are truly a follower of Jesus. In one case, they're just claiming to be a follower of Jesus, and it's really hard to know the difference. In fact, it's not always our job to try to determine the difference, but we need to know that this exists. We need to know that there are people that will come into churches who are not believers, who are being utilized to damage churches, and there are people who are believers 
who are also being utilized to damage churches. And we need to be aware of this. That's what Paul is talking about in his letter to Timothy here. He's gonna help him see this problem and he's gonna give him some instructions for how to deal with this problem. And as we go, I'm gonna try to identify are these people in category four or category three, category two, where, where do these people sit that Paul is talking about? And I think that will help us to draw some application out of this. So 1 Timothy chapter one, verse 18 is where we're going to start. And let's dig into this passage a little bit together. Paul says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. Now, the first thing that might jump out at you is what are these prophetic words that Paul is talking about? He says his instruction is based on those prophetic words. Well, sometime earlier, Paul and the elders of the church had commissioned Timothy for church leadership and ministry, and they prophesied over him. Paul talks about this in chapter four of 1 Timothy. He also talks about it in his second letter to Timothy, the same incident where Timothy was prophesied over and and charged in some way with leading the church. Now, we can assume, based on what Paul is saying here, that probably these prophetic words that were spoken over him had something to do with leading the church out of these challenges, Paul recognized right away, this was no secret, that there were difficult people in the church. There were people causing destruction and division in the church and leading people astray. And so Timothy, he sent Timothy to Ephesus specifically to deal with this. And so somehow Timothy's commissioning had to do with taking care of the challenging problem people in the church. That's what he was there to do. And so what Paul is doing here is he's basically saying, Timothy, remember your calling Remember your commissioning. Remember what was spoken about you when you started there. Like, don't give up. It's almost like it's halftime and the team is coming off the field and the coach has given them a pet pep talk. Say, hey, remember, this is what we're here to do. You were born to win. You were born to go in there. You were, you were designed to lead this thing. We commissioned you for this. This is your calling, your purpose. This is why you're there. Don't give up. Remember your commissioning. Remember the prophetic words that were spoken over you. Here's my instruction based on that. And and you know, when a coach is giving you that halftime speech, it's never new information, is it? It's never never like, hey guys, I got something new for you. Let's try getting the ball in the end zone. Like, no, you know that already. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to give you stuff that are reminders. That it's like, this is what you need to focus on right now. You knew it before. I just want to remind you about it and get it stuck in your head so that when you go out there, it's going to be at the top of your mind. And I think that's the idea that Paul has here. He's not telling Timothy stuff he doesn't know. He's saying, I want to remind you of something. Stay in the fight. Stay in this. Get back in there. Don't give up. Let me remind you about your calling and where you came from and then give you some instruction based on that to get back in there. That's what Paul is doing here. So he says, may they help you fight well. They is the instructions. Help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The church that Timothy is operating in, Paul is now saying, is a battleground that Timothy is fighting in. And Paul's instructions are to help Timothy fight these battles. That seems like an odd thing to say. That phrase, literally, the Lord's battles, literally it means a good military campaign. That's the literal meaning of those words, a good military campaign. Isn't that an odd way to think about a pastor or a church leader saying you're you're in a military campaign? You gotta fight the Lord's battles. But that's how Paul is looking at this. And I think it's important to understand that side of ministry and of leadership, that it's not all warm fuzzies and roses all the time. Sometimes it is a battle. Sometimes it is a fight 
Sometimes you're dealing with, with a disguised enemy and you're trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. How are we gonna work through this? And, and Paul wants Timothy to recognize you're in a fight, man. You're in a battle. I'm gonna give you instructions to help you fight that battle. Sometimes I wonder if the Apostle Paul were to show up in our churches today, if we'd be like really offended by him. This was a blunt guy. He was a bold guy. He made strong statements. He called it like he saw it. And we look up to him uh, a lot, but I wonder if we knew him, if there'd be times where we'd go, ooh, that was a little harsh. <laughs> really? But, but Paul recognizes he's in a battle. And that the reality of it is, I think that sometimes we would have a lot more unity in churches if we were willing to be a little bit more, we'll say, honest with people. Blunt, transparent. I mean, this is a community that's here to help each other grow. None of us are perfect. We get that. And so when we see issues and we see problems, our tendency is to go, ah, I'm just going to look the other way. I'm not going to talk to him about that. I think that too often in churches, we would rather be nice than loving. I really believe that. And it feels really spiritual to just, and you know what? There are times when we just need to let that roll off our back, when we need to Proverbs 19.11 it, which says it's to a wise man's glory to overlook an offense. Absolutely. But there's also the reality that sometimes we are so nice that we fail to bring things up when we see a problem, when we see something that might cause division. And of course, you have to do it with graciousness and with humility and with respect. But I think too many of our problems in churches are caused because we weren't willing to speak up and just say the loving thing. And, and just confront someone in love and say, hey, I'm not sure if I'm seeing this correctly, but I want to let you know what this looks like to me. How is this perceived? I think maybe we'd have a lot more unity in churches if we did that. Sometimes we see unhealthy or destructive or toxic behavior, and it's really easy to just avoid it or put up with it. But is that really the loving thing to do? Do we love people enough to let them know when there's an area that we think they need to grow in? Obviously, with the humility to understand that we don't know the whole story, maybe there's more to it. Do we love the church enough to not put up with people who cause division or spread rumors or spread false teaching? Do we love the church enough to protect it from that? That is what Paul is getting at here. Now, I have to add a clarification because I'm not talking about people who share their opinion with you or their conviction with you and you disagree with it. And, and going after them. That is not what I'm saying. We major on the majors and minor on the minors. We don't divide over secondary issues. I'm not talking about being open about sharing those things. I'm not talking about questions or doubts or skepticism. That's all good. We all have that. We should talk about that. This should be a safe place to talk about that. I'm talking about people who aren't willing to do that and who their effort is to try to get everybody else to jump on the bandwagon of whatever their secondary issue is. Whatever their thing is, they're trying to convert the converted to their way of thinking. That's the type of person that we have to watch out for that I think Jesus and Paul want us to watch out for. So Paul has instructions for Timothy based on his commissioning with the elders. They should help him to wage a good military campaign to fight the Lord's battles. And what are these instructions that he gives him? Verse 19, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. If you like to mark in your Bibles, I love doing this. It helps me to identify things I wouldn't see otherwise. 
there are a few words that you can circle here. One is faith up here, and then there's faith down here. And there's conscience here, and there's conscience here. So we have two instances of faith, two instances, instances of conscience, and Paul does this intentionally. He creates this pattern here to point out a distinction between Timothy and these other people. There's a, there's a big difference between them. Uh, Paul is very intentional about this. He's saying with Timothy, you have faith in Christ and you need to cling to that. You have a clear conscience and you need to keep that. But these other people, what's different about them is that they have deliberately violated their consciences. And so their faith is, is shipwrecked. They've deliberately violated their consciences. That's a very interesting thing to me, that they intentionally chose to do something that Paul is saying they should have known not to do. You know what that tells me? That tells me that these people were not in category four. These were not followers of Jesus who were simply misguided and out of ignorance, unintentionally were causing damage in the churches. Paul is saying they know what they should do. They've been confronted at this point and they have deliberately chosen to keep doing what they are doing. They probably still thought they were doing the right thing, by the way. They probably had convinced themselves, deceived themselves that what they were doing, that was really the right thing to do. But they had been presented with the truth and they deliberately chose to ignore it. They knew what was right and they were unwilling to change and accept the truth. The passage that we read earlier in verse 20 talks about them blaspheming God. And you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, Paul said, or last week rather, Paul said that he blasphemed God, but he said that he blasphemed God out of ignorance. And here he's saying these people deliberately violated their conscience. They don't have any excuse. This isn't out of ignorance. They made a deliberate choice to reject the truth. And so their faith is shipwrecked. Now, that's an interesting phrase too, isn't it? What does it mean that their faith is shipwrecked? That's a challenging one. Does that mean that they had faith in Jesus and now they lost it? Does that mean that they had faith in Jesus, but now they've gotten sidetracked by something they're sort of led astray, but they still have faith in Jesus? Or does that mean that they were never believers in the first place? They never had faith in Jesus. What is Paul talking about here? It's really hard to know. It may be impossible to know with certainty, but I think the clues are there to help us understand most likely what was the spiritual state of these people Paul was talking about. First of all, the fact that Paul deals with them so harshly tells me that this was probably a very serious offense on their part. I mean, Paul reserves this kind of harsh speech, harsh speech for people that are absolutely opposed to the gospel, who are preaching a false gospel. He does that in other churches as well, in other letters as well. And Paul told the Corinthian church that the gospel was the most important thing. It was of first importance, he said. And so I think it's very likely that these people were teaching a false gospel. And if they just believed in a different gospel and then went on their merry way, that'd be one thing. But these people stayed in the church and infiltrated the church and were trying to lead people away from the church. That means that there were other people who were interested in Jesus and checking out the church in Ephesus. And these people were there teaching them a wrong version of the gospel, I think, and leading those people astray. That's obviously a big problem. The fact that if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that these people were promoting the Mosaic law uh, heavily and the Jewish customs and myths and speculations on top of that means probably what they were doing, their version of the false gospel was to say, hey, yeah, Jesus is good. Jesus is great. You should believe in Jesus, but you got to also do the, the law, the old covenant law and these extra things we've added on top of it in order to be made right with God. 
I think that's probably the version of the gospel that they were preaching. And then there's the fact that they deliberately violated their consciences. After hearing the truth, they rejected Paul's teaching and his correction about the way to be made right with God. So what does Paul mean when he says their faith was shipwrecked? How does that contrast with Timothy and clinging to his faith? Well, when Paul says their faith is shipwrecked, I think what he means by that is not that they didn't have faith in Jesus, that they had faith in Jesus and now they don't. I think it means that they never had faith in him to begin with and what they're putting their faith in isn't gonna get them to the right destination. I think the analogy he chooses is actually very important. That word for shipwrecked isn't an interpretation. It literally means shipwrecked. That's the word that was used when Paul was actually shipwrecked. Their faith is shipwrecked. And Ephesus was a port city. Ships were coming in and out all the time. It was one of the biggest port cities in Asia Minor. And so I think what Paul has in mind here is that if, if faith is the ship and the destination port is trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, the good ship faith never made it to its destination port of trusting in Jesus. See, everybody has faith. Everybody believes in something. Whether you believe in God or not, you have faith in something. You might have faith in yourself. You might have faith in another religion. If you're an atheist, you have faith that there is no God. You believe you have faith that there is no God. You certainly hope there is no God. Because one day you hope to find out that your belief was correct. And that you don't have to deal with the judgment of a God that you did not believe and had faith did not exist. So everyone has faith. And I think what's happening here is Paul is saying that their faith was shipwrecked before it ever got to port. They don't have a faith to cling to. Their faith is, is on the rocks of, of doubt and unbelief and a false gospel message. They rejected the truth. They went their own way. And now they're preaching that false gospel to others in the church. Then he gives us two examples. And he treats them very seriously. And I think this is why. This is such a serious thing to Paul. He says in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. Now that's an interesting phrase too, isn't it? Handed them over to Satan. What do you think that means? That sounds pretty bad. Like does that mean that we're literally taking somebody and saying, all right, we're gonna give this guy to Satan. Let him have his way with him. Is that, what, is that what Paul's saying there? What does he mean? Handed them over to Satan. He uses the same phrase elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, for instance, he uses this phrase of a guy who's been having immoral relations with his stepmother. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, he says, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Same phrase. Throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. And Paul continues to explain this a little bit more and a few verses later he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it's certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. This is what Paul means by handing over to Satan. And that's why the translation that I use, the New Living Translation, actually puts that in there for them. It says, I, I threw them out. That's what he means when he says, I handed them over to Satan. I threw them out. I removed them from the assembly. 
And that may not seem like as big of a deal to you today as it was back then, but there's an element of spiritual protection that comes from being a part of God's local family, right? There, there's a spiritual protection over you. You have pastors and elders and church leaders who are caring for you and praying for you, are here for you to support you. You have a, a community of other believers who can help keep you accountable, can help keep you on the right path, help correct you when you're wrong, help encourage you when you're down, comfort you when you're mourning, keep you focused on God and faith in him when you don't. You have people with all sorts of different gifts. You have people with a gift of faith and no matter what's happening, they just trust in God and we need those people to help us do the same thing. You have that in the body of Christ. You have that in the church. And so to remove that from a person and say, you're no longer a part of this family, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. It was probably a much bigger deal to them back then. We're so much more independent now, especially in our culture. But when you get kicked out of that family, you lose that community and that spiritual protection that you once had. That's why I think it's really foolish for people to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I trust in him, all that. I just don't like the church. I just don't wanna be a part of a church. I just don't wanna go to church. I don't wanna have that community. I'm just gonna kinda do it on my own. Maybe watch a few online every now and then, but uh, that's good for me. The church was given to us by God as a, as a gift to help us get through this world together. It's a safe haven from the pressures and, and the, the peer pressure of the world, from the culture that's constantly trying to drive us away from the things of God. The church is, is like an anchoring point. It's God's embassy. He's got embassies all over the place. We are foreigners in this world. We don't belong here. And so we're constantly feeling that tension. Don't you feel that tension as you live in this world, as you, as you watch TV, as you watch the news, as you get online? Don't you feel that tension of the fact that this is not really your home? Like this is not your place. And here's this thing that God gives us, this gift, this blessing of a community of people where he says you can go there and you're not all perfect, but you're all gonna help each other. And you're all gonna get through this together. You're gonna be my people together. And for someone to say, I'm good, I don't need that, I think that's a really, really foolish thing. Along with that, there's, there's another step that we sometimes take that's not quite that far, but we say, you know what, it's not that big a deal to me. Church isn't really a priority in my life. I'll, you know, I'll go every now and then. You know, some people are a couple times a year, CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only, you're familiar with that, aren't you? Other people are once a month kind of people, like I'll be here. And look, I'm not trying to say you've gotta be in church every time the doors are open. That's legalism, okay? That is not what I'm trying to say. The Bible never says, here's the prescribed amount. It's three times a week, all right? Twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday, don't miss one. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, don't give up meeting together. Or in the old, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. That's what the Bible says. This is a priority thing. This is a heart issue. This isn't a number of times issue. This isn't a, well, as long as you're there two times a month. That's not what this is. This is a what's taking priority over God's family in your life. What is it that you're constantly putting above connecting with his people because you're losing that spiritual protection and influence and accountability and community that God has meant for you to go through life together? I gotta be honest, I think there are a lot of things where we're gonna look back years from now and say, I wish I would have put my church family ahead of whatever that thing was that kept pulling me away from them. I wonder how my life, my family, my kids would be different. I'm not trying to preach legalism here. I'm just trying to talk about priorities and the incredible gift and the privilege that God has given us to be a part of his church. That's why it's such a big deal for Paul. 
That's why it's, it's the last resort. It's this biggest thing he can do to say to these people, you're no longer a part of this church family. And our people shouldn't associate with you more. Not because we don't love you, not because we don't want you to be here, but because you've chosen this path of disobedience and rebelliousness and false teaching and you've been corrected multiple times and you still will not change your ways. And so the last thing we can do is to say, you're not welcome here anymore. But it's not without hope. And it's not for their destruction. Paul doesn't want these people to be destroyed. He wants them to be rescued. This isn't punishment, this is discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about his goal of handing them over to Satan, throwing them out of the church. Here's what he says. You must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. The outcome for this man is hopefully a good one. Hopefully he comes back. Hopefully he repents. Hopefully this is the wake-up call that he needed where he would finally realize I'm heading down the wrong path and I couldn't see it until now. Everybody just put up with it until now and now, whoa, this is a big deal. They don't even want me around anymore. They say I'm not part of their church family anymore. This is a big, big deal. And hopefully that leads to this person repenting. In 2 Corinthians, so the next letter Paul sends, we're in 1 Corinthians now. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives the church a message about someone in this type of situation. We don't know for sure if it's this man. It very well could be. But here's what Paul says about someone who has been basically kicked out and now Paul is saying he's repented and you need to welcome him back in. Here's what he says. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. You see what Paul is saying here? This man has repented now. There's more to it than that. I'm not gonna go through the whole passage. And he's saying, forgive this guy. At another point, he says, I don't want him to be discouraged forever. I want you to forgive him because I forgive him. The goal of this is not to kick them out for good. The goal of this is as a last resort, a last wake-up call to say something's got to change. And hopefully they do change and they repent and they can be welcomed back in. That is exactly what Paul wants. And back in 1 Timothy, when Paul is writing about these two guys, he says, I threw them out and handed them over to Satan. Why? So they could be destroyed, so they could never come back, so we'd never have to hear from them again? No, so that they might learn not to blaspheme God. Paul's not wishing harm on these people. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to turn from their false beliefs. He wants them to fully trust in Jesus, to stop spreading division in the church. If they're not willing to do that, what else can he do? This is the last resort, the last thing he can do. What we've been talking about this morning is called church discipline. And church discipline is is kind of a taboo subject in a lot of churches. It's something we don't talk about a lot. It's not something that I think we're engaged in right now or need to be engaged in right now, which is the perfect time to talk about it. This is something we all need to be aware of, that there is a progression here to dealing with challenging, difficult, quarrelsome people in churches, people who are teaching the wrong things or spreading division and will not stop. And the final step of that is to say, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here anymore. We're not going to put up with that here anymore. Not that we ever want it to get there, but we have to be willing to go there if we need to. Not to be against that person, but to help them learn, to help them grow, to help them repent so that they will come back, so they will realize where they're wrong. I wanna talk about the last part of this. Blaspheming God. 
What does it mean to blaspheme God? The word blaspheme means to disrespect or to take something that's sacred and treat it as not sacred, but basically it means to disrespect. And how are these people blaspheming God? Well, if we put the clues together, I think they were blaspheming God by teaching something that disrespected God and what Jesus did on the cross. I think that what these men were doing was teaching that Jesus wasn't enough. His sacrifice wasn't enough. Belief in Jesus, that's not all there is. You've gotta follow the law. You've gotta follow our customs. You've gotta follow our myths and our speculations. You've gotta follow these extra things that we've added on to it. And so it's Jesus, yeah, he's good, plus this. And that's an incredibly disrespectful thing for them to say that Jesus wasn't enough. Imagine that you were going to give a gift to someone that you love. It's your favorite person in the world and you know there's something they have wanted forever, their whole lives, but super expensive. So you take an extra job, an extra part-time job and you save up for like five years to be able to buy this thing. And you buy it for them and you're so excited you can't wait to see the expression on their face when they finally open up this gift and see what it is. And and today's the big day and you give it to them and you just wait and you're waiting for them to open it and they open the gift and they look at it. They look at you. They look back at the gift. You say, do you like it? They say, yeah. Well, it doesn't seem like you really like it. Um, yeah. I mean, this is what you've wanted your whole life. I worked for like five years to save this up and get this for you. You know, I was just hoping maybe instead of blue, it would be a dark teal. And they wrap it back up and they give it back to you and say, thanks anyway. I think I'm gonna go get one on my own. And you're like, I just saved up for years to get you that gift. It took a lot of money. There's no way you're just gonna be able to go get one of those off the shelf. It doesn't work that way. It's not that simple. Do you know what I had to go through to acquire that for you? And I don't even think they make a dark teal one. Blue's the closest you're gonna get. And they're like, yeah, I think I'm just gonna go try to get one on my own. So how disrespected do you feel in that moment? Some of you are angry right now just thinking about it. Imagine how God feels with the gift that he's given us. And what he put into that and the sacrifice, when someone on this earth hears about that, sees that gift, it's, it's put right in front of them and they say, yeah, I think I'm gonna go try to do it myself. And he's like, but it's all here. I did it all for you, I did all the work. Everything's right, you can't do it on your own. And people go, no, I think I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do it on my own. That is so disrespectful. That, I think, is what these men were doing. I think they were blaspheming God by saying, Jesus, he's not enough. You need our stuff too. And that's how you'll be made right with God. And I think they were leading people astray. So I don't think these people were in category three. I think they were probably in category two. I think they acted like followers of Jesus. I don't think they really knew Jesus. I don't think they believed a true gospel. I think they were preaching a false gospel. Let me just summarize what we've learned up to this point. And then I wanna share one more passage 
that relates to this. Paul has reminded Timothy now about his commissioning for leadership. He's given him instructions on how to handle these false teachers that are causing problems in the church. He reminds Timothy that he's in a battle. He tells him, cling to your faith. Keep your conscience clear. Some people have done the opposite. They've deliberately violated their consciences. They've heard the truth. They've rejected it. Their faith is shipwrecked. I don't think it ever made it to the destination port. And I want to close by reading to you Matthew chapter 7. This is the spot where Jesus tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. These disciples are the future leaders of the church, and Jesus is saying, watch out, because this is what's going to happen. Read Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 with me. He says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only if you ever find it. I think if we were to apply Paul's analogy here of the shipwreck, we could say the voyage is difficult. The port is hard to get to. There are lots of sandbars and rocks along the way that could get you sidetracked before you get there. I think that fits. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says, who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce good a bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Now this is where it gets really scary. This is where it gets absolutely terrifying. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. We did all this good stuff for you. We did lots of good things. We had fruit. We, did, we gave money to the church. We served in different ways. We did lots of good things. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Get away from me. You who break God's laws. Now, since we just talked about this recently, I want to point out this is not the Mosaic law. This is God's moral law. What Jesus literally says is, you who ignore all laws, workers of lawlessness, people who don't care what God has to say, and yet they're trying to do good. They say, Lord, Lord, and that's what makes this so frightening is that there will be people who think they're doing the right things, but they've added on to what Jesus already did for them. They haven't trusted only in him for their salvation. They think they're producing fruit the whole time, but it's not good fruit. It's not godly fruit. It may be because of their ego or their pride or whatever else they want to do or earning their acceptance with God, but it's not fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. They were acting in their own power. And these people will be surprised when God tells them, That was the wrong path. I never knew you. In fact, it was disrespectful to me because I paid in full for what you were trying to purchase. What can we walk away with today? It's not the most uplifting message. I get that. There are happier messages I've delivered, but it's necessary. It's part of God's word. Here's my advice Look out for assassin Christians. 
They're not hiding under every rock, but we should be aware. We should be vigilant. This is what Paul and Jesus have warned us about. We need to be careful if there are people who we sense are trying to act a certain way, but actually trying to cause division or false teaching. If you spot someone teaching a, a false version of the gospel in the church or causing division or, or living a life that's obviously contrary to God's word, the most loving thing to do is not to ignore it. It's to talk to them about it. To actually go up to them and say, hey, I don't know if I'm reading this right. Maybe this is my perception. Maybe I'm off here, but this is what I see. Can we talk about this? And maybe if we had a lot more loving confrontation like that, we'd have a much stronger, healthier, and growing body of Christ if we all did that. Understand that the church is a blessing. It's a gift from God. It's a privilege to be a part of. Don't take it for granted. Don't treat it as a lower priority than all these other things in your life. And maybe there are, there are people here who are just now realizing that they have been trying to purchase what God paid for, that they've been trying to do enough good to be acceptable to God, and they, it just hasn't clicked yet that Jesus did it all for them, and they just need to trust fully in him. If that's you, then we want to talk with you. We want to share more about the gospel with you, help you to understand and answer your questions about what it means to have faith in Jesus and not this other stuff. When you trust in Jesus, he changes the things you want to do. But you don't have to do those things to be made right and acceptable to God. And even trying to do that is disrespectful to God. So at the end of this service, we're going to have one more song. And, and we'll have a prayer team after that up here. And if you want to have prayer for anything or to get more information about what I've talked about, to know more about what it means to have faith in Jesus, come talk with one of us. Talk with one of our prayer team members or us out in the lobby. And we would love to pray with you and help explain to you what it means to trust in Jesus and nothing else. I'm gonna ask all of you to bow your heads and pray with me right now. Jesus, this is a hard thing to talk about, uh, but it's something that you want us to talk about so that we're prepared. I think now's a great time to do it. We're not dealing with any challenges like this that I'm aware of. So we need to be watchful and vigilant and prepared. We need to be wise and we need the guidance of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to make sure that we protect and safeguard the community, the unity, the family that you have given us. And help us not to take it for granted, Lord, but treat it as a priority. And may you use it to grow us in our spiritual lives and to help others grow in their spiritual lives as we are a part of this local family of God. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.